You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Welcome to How to Citizen with Baratunde, a show where we reimagine the word citizen as a verb, reclaim it from those who've weaponized it, and remind ourselves how to wield our collective power. This is a new episode. I'm Baratunde. Like any healthy democracy, this show is stronger when you participate, and we have a number of ways for you to do that. If you're on the social media, Use the hashtag HowToCitizen when you post about the show, and we will lift up as many as we can. If you want to be more direct, you can always reach out to us via comments at HowToCitizen.com. We still check email around here. And if you're doing the actions, 
that we ask you to at the end of each show? Let us know what you did. Send an email to action at howtocitizen.com. I am loving seeing your reflections, the organizations you're starting. It's really great. Let's keep it up. And speaking of keeping things up, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you to rate and review the show wherever you're listening to it. I suggest five stars, but that's up to you, citizen. A quick word on how we make this show. We do most of them live in Zoom with a visible cameras on, chat room fired up audience, which could include you. You have a chance to ask our guests questions and literally help make the show. You can sign up for these invites by going to howtocitizen.com and joining my email list. And yes, I love the live audience experience, but you're special because you're right here. So don't worry, I'm going to be back. Check in with you certainly at the end of the show where I give you particular ways that you can citizen. Now, allow me to pass the mic to myself as I set up this episode. We are gathered here today to talk about work and the people who do it in our society. Uh, For the past several decades, we've seen a consolidation of power in our country and in our economy. Productivity has gone up by 70%, but wages have remained stagnant for the last 40 years. In the midst of a pandemic, we are even more exposed to who has power in the economy. And while we talk in abstract terms about labor and capital underneath of all that is people. And as we know from this show, we are all about that people power. One of the things we learned from Eric Liu in episode two is that when we have power, we tend to consolidate it more. Power begets more power. It compounds like interest. And we've seen that happen so much with our economy and who has the power to flex within it. But we also learned something else from that seminal episode on power with Eric, that it's infinite, that we can generate it by shifting our attention, our focus, our labors in the direction of distributing power more to the people. There is a new labor movement afoot in this country. And while we are drowning in the stories of things that aren't working, there are people working to make work itself work for so many of us. And we are honored to have two of those individuals here representing themselves and their organizations in building a new type of movement for and with workers. Michelle Miller is the co-founder and co-executive director of coworker.org, a peer-based platform that deploys digital tools and data and strategies to help people improve their work lives. This organization describes itself as a laboratory for workers to experiment with power building strategies and win meaningful changes in the 21st century economy. Before co-founding coworker.org, Michelle spent a decade at the Service Employees International Union, where she used creative media and the arts to advance union campaigns. We are joined by Saru Jayaraman, the director of the Social Movement Center at the University of California, Berkeley, and because one job's not enough for this hard worker, the president of One Fair Wage, which is fighting to end sub-minimum wages for tipped and other low-wage workers and ensure that everybody who works in America receives at least a full, fair minimum wage from their employer. 
Prior to One Fair Wage, Saru co-founded Restaurant Opportunity Centers United to improve wages and working conditions for the nation's restaurant workforce. Both Michelle and Saru have been at this for a long time. In some cases, they have degrees in it. They teach it. They've studied it. And they've practiced it. And they share something else in common. They both have a White House connect. I'm speaking, of course, of the previous White House. Michelle co-moderated a panel with then-President Obama on Worker Voice. Saru was recognized by that same White House as a champion of change back in 2014. So I, I want to start with a quote actually from the homepage of coworker.org, which says the following. At Coworker, we believe people should have agency and power in their work lives. Most of us will spend a third of our adult lives at work, more time than we spend with our families in school or participating in our community civic life. Yet many of us are silenced and unseen at our jobs. We deserve to have a voice in shaping our working conditions and the ways in which work happens. We are powerful, and together we can transform our jobs and workplaces. Amazing sentiments, very well stated and well said, and it sets the stage for why we're here. Even though it's from coworker.org, it represents a lot of the work you both have been doing across your whole careers. You're both on these front lines of new ways of looking at work and I want to understand from you how, even if the types of workers your organizations focus on are different, some of the tactics and struggles you're seeing may actually be the same. Can you tell me about who you're supporting with your work and what that looks like? Michelle, I'll start with you. please. Sure. Thank you so much. Um, I'm very happy to be here with all of you. Um, so Coworker is... Um, we sometimes describe ourselves as the welcome mat to the labor movement on the internet. We're an open platform for anybody to start a workplace campaign around something they care about, that they want to change. And we help them use internet tools to build up a committee of their fellow coworkers, no matter where those coworkers are in the country. And so most of the people that we support are people in service sector, low wage jobs, people in the gig economy. We've worked closely with the organizations that we founded, Rock um, and Restaurant Work, Retail and Gig and, and many other parts of the economy where people are sort of doing that frontline work, frontline service work, the people that we interact with every day um, as we are going about our business. So just quickly during COVID-19, one example is we supported campaigns by grocery store workers at almost every national and regional chain. And they were the people who were able to recognize very quickly the potential health impacts of having to work during the pandemic and the necessity of having grocery store employees on the front lines. And so they won hazard pay and made hazard pay like just an understood demand that they were able to win at the company level and then sort of in the media level where when people were talking about what workers deserve in this moment, they were always including this idea of hazard pay. And that has been, for those workers, just the act of coming together and winning hazard pay at places like Trader Joe's and, and Whole Foods and other places, engage them in an experience of their own collective power that has kept them together over time to ensure that those companies hang on to the protections that they won. So that's a little bit about who we're working with and how we're working on these campaigns. I love the way you put that, engage them in the experience of their own collective power. You landed at the right podcast right now, Michelle. <laughs> um, Saru, I have a similar question to you. You know, Who uh, is One Fair Wage supporting with its work? 
Uh, what does that work look like? Right after September 11th, 2001, I co-founded the Restaurant Opportunity Center together with workers, restaurant workers who had lost their jobs and their co-workers' lives at Windows on the World, which was the restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center Tower One. And since that time, 19 years ago, been fighting to raise wages and working conditions in the restaurant industry and now more broadly in the service sector, all tipped workers. Um, so there are about 13.6 million restaurant workers in America, or there were right before the pandemic. Another couple million other tipped workers, nail salon, car wash, wheelchair attendants, hair salon workers. These are all tipped workers. And then gig workers who receive tips are also under our umbrella. And what we've been collectively fighting for is, you know, at this point, we're close to 15 or 16 million workers in America, collectively fighting to end the subminimum wage for tipped workers, which is still $2.13 an hour in the United States of America. And I, I'll tell you more about the history of why it's $2.13 an hour. It's a literal legacy of slavery in a little bit. But just to say who these workers are, they are 70% women. They're disproportionately women of color. They are adults, they're not teenagers. Um, the median age is 35, and they are literally the lowest paid workers in America. Every year, the US Department of Labor has put out a list of the 10 lowest paying jobs. And every year, seven of the 10 lowest paying jobs in America are all in one sector, the restaurant and service sector. So, you know, it's the people who put food on our tables who frankly, even before the pandemic, couldn't put food on their own families' tables. With the pandemic, it became an issue of life and death because 60% of these workers couldn't get unemployment insurance. About 10 million of these 15 million workers lost their jobs and 60% of them couldn't get unemployment insurance, not because they weren't documented. There was a whole other issue for immigrants, but for documented workers, they couldn't get unemployment insurance because they were living off tips and their states told them, you earn too little. It doesn't look like you earned anything or you earn too little for us to award you benefits. And so these workers were gaslighted. <laughs> they were told, because we pay you too little, you're not going to get benefits that, by the way, you paid taxes to get. And now these same workers are being asked to go back to work and enforce social distancing and mask rules with the very same customers from whom they're supposed to get tips to make up that $2 wage and bring it to the full minimum wage. So, you know, who are these workers? They're the workers that, frankly, are going to either stop or perpetuate a super spreader event this fall when indoor dining really becomes a thing in a lot of the East Coast. And the CDC has reported eating at a restaurant makes you twice as likely to get the virus, which means both the workers and everybody, you know, who eats in these restaurants is going to be at incredible risk. So we're relying on these workers who are protecting us and we're paying them $2 at the same time. That's who these workers are. Thank you for that overview. And I think bringing it to the tension, the sort of contradictory, the paradoxical demands that we've put on a certain set of workers to ingratiate themselves to customers while also disciplining them and becoming some sort of rule enforcer yeah. and, a, and a public health official. Right. That doesn't quite add up. It just sounds unreasonable. There is a word that we are getting more familiar with in this show and encouraging people to embrace as well, and that is power. And you know, where does it reside and who has it? And in the age old question of employers and employees, there is a power dynamic. 
And, and we've seen some shifts in that, certainly at the highest levels in the U.S. over the past several decades, a decline in union membership as one example, or the distribution of wages and earnings as another. But I'm curious, what are you both seeing and what's different now than it was 40 to 50 years ago? I can start, if you don't mind. This is where I'd love to bring in the history because why are we so focused on the fact that six or seven million people earn a $2 wage? We're focused on it because it's the greatest power that the industry has over its workers, which is the power not to pay them at all and have customers essentially pay them for them. It's the power to say, I will benefit from the value of your labor without actually paying for it. It's the power to basically have one group of working people, which is customers, pay for another group of working people's wages. And what's amazing in this moment is that literally thousands of workers are now rising up and saying, I've had enough of this. Uh, and it's 150 years overdue because tipping originated in feudal Europe. It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage when it came to the United States. It was actually right around the time of emancipation, 1850s, 1860s. And the restaurant lobby demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves, mostly black women at the time, and not pay them anything and have them live entirely on tips. They wanted the ability to basically continue slavery, um, to have black workers that they didn't have to pay because they didn't value their labor, much less so because they were black women. And so that idea that a black woman could be paid $0 an hour, frankly, a black person could be paid $0 an hour and have to live off of tips became law in 1938 as part of the New Deal when everybody got the right to the minimum wage for the first time in the United States, except for three groups of black workers, farm workers, domestic workers, and tipped restaurant workers who were told you get a $0 wage as long as tips bring you to the full minimum wage. We went from 0 in 1938 to $2.13 an hour, a $2 increase over 150 years. And I think, I mean, we all know it wouldn't be $2 if it were men or if it were white men, <laughs> but it's women and it's women of color. And they largely work at IHOPs and Denny's and Red Lobsters. And they're struggling to make ends meet because for 150 years, because of the incredible power of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association. We call it the other NRA. It represents the chains, the IHOPs, the Applebee's, the Olive Garden. And here's the thing, like, you know, maybe this absurd legacy of slavery would have gone away if it hadn't been for exactly what you said, the concentration of power among these chains who form this formidable trade lobby and have been named the 10th most powerful lobbying group in Congress. And in every state, the State Restaurant Association is the number one voice on the minimum wage, on paid sick leave, on paid family leave, on any worker issue at the federal level, the NRA, the other NRA, as we call it, is the number one voice on employment issues in Congress. And so until now, it's been what we call Davida versus Goliath. It's not David versus Goliath. It's Davida or Daniela versus Goliath because these are women and women of color up against the most powerful trade lobby in the United States. And it's been a really, really tough fight. We've actually won a full minimum wage with tips on top three times in Michigan, Maine, and D.C. And in every instance, this incredibly powerful trade lobby lobbied and bribed Democrats, let's be real, to overturn the will of the people in each of those places. And so it's been a tough fight, you know, five steps forward, two steps back, because we're up against this huge lobby. 
And finally, we've reached this pandemic moment where we have literally thousands of workers who are saying, that's it, I'm done. Enough is enough. Because, you know, you're asking me to go back to work for two and three dollars, put my life at risk and my family's life at risk for two or three dollars when tips are down 75%. You're asking me to enforce these rules with these crazy customers who I don't know if y'all have seen the news clips, but they're assaulting servers right now. They are assaulting servers for trying to enforce these rules. And so workers have been going on strike. We organized the first strike August 31st. I don't know if it's possible, Bertunde, for me to share an image. I'd love to share an image from the strikes. Is that possible? So yeah, this is a podcast and you cannot see what Saru put up on her screen. So let me try to paint the picture with words. She shared a photograph. The setting is Times Square. There's a large crowd gathered to protest. They're all wearing face masks. There are photographs. There are signs that say things like paid sick days. Dominating the photo is a towering 24-foot cutout of a black woman with long braids and a face mask that says, fight, don't starve. She's wearing an apron and looking directly at the camera lens as she makes a fist with her right hand in a gesture very reminiscent of Rosie the Riveter. This isn't Rosie, though. This is Elena, the essential worker. We erected her in Times Square and also in Zocalo Square in Chicago. There are five of her. She'll be appearing also in Philly and DC and Boston. Um, workers are going on strike all over the country to say enough is enough. We will not go back to work without a full, fair minimum wage with tips on top. And talking about power, what I think is one of the most extraordinary things about this moment is that I've seen hundreds of restaurant owners who actually opposed us on this issue, fought us on this issue, who suddenly come to us and said, enough is enough. We think you're right. The time has come to get rid of this legacy of slavery and to move on. And so workers are rising up and employers are responding. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Uh, Michelle, I'd love you to talk about power dynamics in the industry. And I know you work in so many, but one of the ones that feels so different to me from the world of tipped workers or, or grocery workers that we've heard about so far is the world of tech workers. And if I could kind of suggest getting your analysis on what the workplace power dynamics look like there, because so many of us on the outside say these workers are highly compensated. They get everything they want. They have foosball or what have you. What does that dynamic really look like and what may some of us not understand about power in the tech workplace? So power really is central to this question. I think tech provides a really good illustration of how money doesn't always even equal power. So shortly after the 2016 election, there were many tech workers who started getting together and you know, deciding that they were not going to participate in creating lists for deportation, that they were going to choose not to build surveillance software, that they were going to not participate in the further incursion of human rights via technology. And as they were having these conversations, one of the things they really realized was like, oh, we've already kind of built all of this. Like we've been doing this for many years. And these very well compensated workers who in many of their companies had various forums where they could speak up and talk about things that were bothering them had a sense that when they started talking about the sort of fundamental money makers inside of these companies, inside of places like Google, which is like the collection of data on every single user that touches, even comes near a Google product, or at Facebook, the 
enabling of disinformation campaigns and, and ad buys and, and Twitter just being Twitter, that it was going to take something more than speaking up once or twice at a meeting. And so they came to us and they asked us, their first question was, is it legal and okay for us to use labor organizing around our ethics questions with our companies? Um, which was such an interesting um, way to approach this because for most low-wage workers, like the rules and the law have literally never worked in their favor. And so there isn't that, that question doesn't come up as much as for tech workers, even for folks who maybe came from more marginalized communities, like the rules have generally worked out. And so the first thing they had to do was really think about like interrogate the idea that labor law and labor organizing is not necessarily governed by a set of fair rules at the outset. And you might just have to take a risk anyway to build the power that you need in order to make changes. And so we started working specifically with a group of employees at Google who were concerned about a series of issues inside the company, both around internal harassment campaigns directed at people of color and queer people and trans people who worked at the company, that essentially what would happen would be that they would raise issues around their ethics concerns about products that the company was building on internal message boards. And then more like conservative or racist people inside the company would go after them and attack them. And they couldn't get the company to take their complaints about what was happening seriously. They kept asking someone to discipline the people who were going after them, and they couldn't get the company to respond. And so what they started having to do was something that they had never done before, which is organize themselves into a collective. You know, we talked to them a lot about how, like, if you are all individually fighting this, you are never actually going to make the progress that you need. You have to do it all together. And then telling the story of what was happening to them publicly. And so, you know, for these employees, the fights that they were having with these companies were not fights about whether or not they were getting enough pay or whether or not they were getting decent benefits, but really like, what does our labor produce? And what is the environment in which we are actually producing those things? So do I want to use my labor, which I bring into this company to produce surveillance drones that are flying over the Middle East and able to identify people based on one pixel of information, which is what the Project Maven campaign at Google was run by Googlers. And, and many of the Googlers who were involved in um, demanding that Google stop a partnership with the Department of Defense to build those surveillance drones were themselves from Muslim families who knew that the people in their own families would be targeted in their own countries by these surveillance drones. And, you know, at, at Facebook, there were questions about, like, are we going to continue to turn a blind eye to the ways in which our platform is enabling genocide in Myanmar or um, election finagling in Brazil? But again, like this question of like, what does my labor do and what is the result of what it performs and what is my relationship to that? And can I organize around those things and can I tell a company as a collective body that you are not going to use our labor, you're not going to use our engineering skills to do harm to people that we share the world with or that we share the country with. Another great example of that was when the information about detention centers being run by ICE 
was made public in, in the summer of 2018, how many tech workers quickly recognized that Salesforce was providing software, that Wayfair was providing beds, that all of these companies were deeply embedded in these practices and actually enabling those practices to take place. And again, yeah. people collectively coming together and saying, like, you don't get to use my labor for this. And so what we've seen is this sort of ongoing interrogation of the ways in which the companies that people have been working for for many years, who previously had promised them that the work they were doing was all about the betterment of the world, that like technology, remember like 2015, that like technology was going to connect us all and make everything easier and better. Um, and that the, the root of the lie in that promise when you are built into the United States of America's imperial goals and further incursion on human rights, like how do you contest with the fact that you are involved in that project and how do you use l your labor to stop those things? What I'm hearing from both of you in different ways is an attempt to rebalance power, whether that power has been used to take advantage of someone in a literal financial and physical sense, or in a more moral and ethical sense, that we need to shift that balance of power between workers and, and certainly their very large employers who are consolidated and have some outsized amount of power in making the rules. What do you all think happens outside of the workplace? This feels like it's bigger than just the workplace. Are, are there ripple effects? Are there consequences for the larger society in not doing that and not rebalancing that power and not sort of taking on and, and giving workers more of a voice to use some of your language. Listen, the pandemic revealed so much that was so wrong for so long, you know, the dysfunction of the system, not just for workers, but for employers and consumers and frankly, for our democracy. So I'm going to go in that order. <laughs> the dysfunction didn't work for employers, you know, our industry has the highest rates of turnover of any industry in the United States. It's 300%. That's three turns in one position in one year. We actually calculated the cost and it's in the millions for any of these chains. They spend millions of dollars each year on rehiring and retraining and employee morale being low because they pay so little. So it, it hurts employers themselves. It even it hurts shareholders. It hurts People in these companies who are not actually achieving their best potential as companies because they're not paid. It hurts consumers because we end up bearing the brunt of the public health disaster that occurs when tipped workers cannot enforce these rules because they have to rely on tips. But it also hurts consumers because consumers are footing the bill for multi-billion dollar corporations by paying their workers wages in tips. You know, we as consumers and taxpayers, we subsidize multi-billion dollar corporations like Darden, which is Olive Garden's parent company and IHOP and Denny's. We subsidize them through our tips, paying their workers wages through their tips. But we also subsidize them to the tune of 16.5 billion with a B dollars annually in taxpayer funded public assistance. This is, you know, workers having to use Medicare or Medicaid, workers, you know, using various forms of emergency room care. I mean, just all kinds of public assistance. But I think the biggest thing to think about when workers don't have power and they end up with a $2 wage, which is to me the epitome of not having power, the biggest challenge is to our economy and our democracy, because what happens when the largest and fastest growing industry in America is the absolute lowest paying? 
It means that we're going from a country of one in three working Americans working and living in poverty to a country of one in two Americans, half of all working Americans working full time and living in poverty. It means that our consumption power as a country is non-existent. I think we're feeling that right now when millions of people are out of work, unable to cover meals for their children or, or utilities or pay the rent. What happens to our ability to consume as a country? And then worst of all, for those of you that have ever scratched your heads about why we don't vote as a country, why is it that Americans have such a low voter turnout rate? I will tell you why. It's because the largest and fastest growing industries in America are people who work two and three jobs and largely cannot you know, afford to think or let alone engage in political activity. And uh, frankly, also feel disillusioned and disengaged because they're earning $2 an hour. And they've seen both Democrats and Republicans sell them down the river for the National Restaurant Association and leave them at $2 an hour. Even as other workers go up to 15, they've been left behind at two and three and five. I know if it were me, I wouldn't vote because I would say, what's the point? Both parties have left me at two and three dollars. That's the result of a lack of power among low wage workers, a lack of voice, a lack of ability to change their circumstances. Those are the moments in which fascists rise. When workers don't have voice or power, they feel helpless, they feel hopeless, they feel disengaged. And what I'm trying to say is that definitely is changing. There is hope on the horizon. We've seen Work, these same workers now rising up and saying enough is enough, not just with regard to their wages, but also with regard to voting. They're feeling some hope with regard to voting, but the real consequence of us having allowed these workers for so long to not have power and to not get paid and to not feel their voice or their power or even their humanity at $2 an hour is the loss of our democracy. Uh, Michelle, do you have anything you want to add to this idea of the effects beyond the workplace? I mean, as Saru was talking, I, I was really thinking a lot about the deeper layers of the loss of being able to vote and the fact that someone is working two to three jobs and probably taking care of um, someone in their family that doesn't have adequate access to medical care and probably is also responsible for children and their family who don't have access to decent childcare and is are really bearing the brunt of a number of structural and institutional failures in this country, also then do not have the time or the mental space to contribute to the policies that will change those things and to actually be active members of our communities. And the ways in which that tears at community like that means that the commons only gets to be populated by people who have enough money and time to show up in the commons because everybody else is at work. And when you can't show up, the things that you know about the ways in which the economy does function, could function, the ways in which we can care for each other, the ways in which we distribute food and goods and logistics are all lost. It is like an aggregate loss to us in terms of actually being able to adequately govern our society and make good decisions about the ways in which we want to allocate resources to run a good economy. It is not just a matter of 
the fact that it's not fair and not right that folks are working all the time and forced to live in poverty and suffering, although all, of course those things are true, but there is a deeper loss around the contributions that people can actually make to our culture and our society and the ideas that drive our government. When you think about the fact that most of the policy that is developed, most of the stories that are told about our economy are told by people who mostly operate in very similar circumstances to one another economically and came from the same schools and live in the same places, you, you really can start to grok like why uh, we have not been able to meet people and why people feel like there's nothing worth voting for because the institutions don't even know how to talk to and engage the people because they haven't included them in their governance. We call this show How to Citizen. We're, we're trying to make it a verb. We're trying to define together what that means for us as people. But we also live in a society where corporations are people-like entities. And there's an idea of corporate citizenship that sometimes means deeper things than at other times, but there is a set of responsibilities. And I'm curious what you all think of the role of a good corporate citizen. How does a company citizen well? What does it mean for them, for the benefit of the society to do that better? We now have uh, 850 restaurant companies who've joined forces with us and are coming with us to governors and, and to city councils and state legislatures and Congress to say we need livable wages for workers. We need it to be required across the board. We need $15 with tips on top. We need paid sick leave. We need hazard pay. They are saying they need those things as employers both because they believe that's good for workers and because they believe it's actually better for the bottom line, for their business. But I will tell you, that's not the chains. That's mostly not the chains. These are independent restaurants across the country that, although they also are struggling to survive, are saying, you know what, we're struggling to survive, but we know our workers are struggling 10,000 times more than we are. We may lose our businesses, they'll lose their homes. And so to me, they are model corporate citizens. They are the employers who are saying, this is not just about me as the business owner making double, triple digit profits. This is about me as not just a member of my community, but a provider for my community, an employer in my community, um, somebody who not only, you know, shut down my business, but then watched my workers suffer in my community. And that impacts me. Um, the model corporate citizen is the, frankly, the Henry Ford of today. I mean, let's be clear. Henry Ford was a Nazi and a racist. Let's be clear on who Henry Ford was. But the philosophy that he espoused, that I, I have to make sure that my workers on the assembly line make enough to pay for the cars, frankly, was a selfish philosophy. It was a philosophy of, I, I want to make sure there are consumers. And we've gone so far afield from, you know, even, frankly, basic economics. Like that to me is just basic economics. <laughs> we've gone so far afield to, in greed and avarice and just extreme profit-driven motive that they have cannibalized their own consumer base. In the restaurant industry, for example, before the pandemic, we had three segments, fine dining, casual or family style restaurants. Those are the IHOPs and the Applebee's that are full service, but casual. And then quick service, anything without a waiter. Well, fast food and fine dining were exploding because of the hourglass nature of our economy. 
the wealthy were eating out and low-wage workers were eating in fast food. But the casual restaurants of America have stagnated. They've not died, but they've stagnated. They aren't growing as fast as the other two segments because the people who used to eat in casual restaurants were, guess who? Restaurant workers. That's where restaurant workers would go hang out after their shifts. That's where they'd take their families. And at $2.13 an hour, they cannot afford to eat even at the Olive Garden anymore. They can't afford to eat at Denny's. They can't afford to take their family out for a family meal at a family-style restaurant. And that is an example of a, a corporate cannibal that is destroying their own consumer market. And so what we need is independent, what we call them high-road businesses, businesses that are taking the high road to prof profitability that actually believe in investing in their workforce and then fighting for policy change alongside their workers. That's a true corporate citizen, like a, like a high road corporate citizen, giving their workers a day off to go vote. That's a true corporate citizen. Uh, Michelle, what are your thoughts on what a good corporate citizen is or does? I want to talk a little bit about the structures that make it difficult for companies to act like good corporate citizens, because I, I think that they do all of the things that Saru described. But many companies are owned by private equity firms, hedge funds, and have been financialized to the point that companies themselves are treated as speculative properties and rent-seeking properties. I'm going to pop in real quick to help break something down that Michelle just said. When she described companies that have been financialized by hedge funds and private equity, she's talking about a process known as financialization. And I could just leave you hanging and let you look it up yourself, but I believe in you and I want to help you out. So let me define this term real quick. Financialization is when a company shifts away from generating its profits, primarily through selling actual goods and services, and starts to rely instead on financial instruments, uh, debt, interests, capital gains. It's a trend in the economy overall as financial services make up an increasing share of economic activity. Critics will argue that this is a poor way to generate value. It is short term. It prioritizes the gains of investors and insiders over workers and the general public. So it is a less real version of economic growth, or in this case, of corporate profits. I hope that helped. Back to our conversation. A great example is we work with Starbucks baristas for many, many years. We started seeing like as soon as they gave workers an across the board wage in 2016, what we started hearing from workers was that labor hours were being sneakily cut at stores all across the country. So like the CEO couldn't make the decision to give everybody a raise and just like have that be money that went into the pockets of workers. That money had to be made up for by cutting hours that people were able to work in understaffing stores because they're actually beholden to a bunch of shareholders. And when the pandemic hit, we had baristas who were asking that Starbucks close all of their cafes because they're, they were not providing an essential service and that they wanted to be paid. And Starbucks was saying that they didn't have the money. And we discovered that at the same time, there were $40 million in stock buybacks that were taking place. Stock buybacks is when people in the company buy back the stock to raise the share price to make it more valuable so that they can it's shenanigans. And so when that became public information, 
it allowed for there to be open questions about why Starbucks wasn't meeting the needs of their employees. And they actually ended up winning. The Starbucks baristas had four to six weeks where they didn't have to go to work in the cafes and they were able to be paid. I just think it's really important when we're thinking about the policies that we want to implement in order to actually enable companies to be good corporate citizens, really thinking about the way that this financialized model makes it more desirable for people to use companies as speculative properties, as making bets and treating the entire economy like a casino, than actually providing for goods and services that we need in our economy. Shenanigans is just a great definition of stock buybacks. You like start getting to the technical and you're like, it's shenanigans. <laughs> and we all kind of we all kind of feel you. We all kind of feel you on that. Is this our destiny to have this epic battle? of labor versus capital? Could we live in a world where companies fight with their workers and not just against them and vice versa? Where we align the incentives in the right way to move everybody forward? What would that world look like? How would we create that economic model? I'm going to speak just very practically about what we can do right now to push for that world because we cannot go back to the way things were. The way things were did not work for the majority of people in the world, not just in America. And if we learned anything from the pandemic, it's that we're interdependent. What happens to a waitress, you know, in a restaurant affects you and me because last week the CDC reported that you're twice as likely to get the pandemic if you eat in a restaurant, that restaurants are one of the top super spreader events in the United States. So what happens to her affects people in that restaurant, then it's going to affect everybody you interact with. We are interdependent. So if we're interdependent, let's reimagine our world and put a stake in the ground to fight for that reimagined world and an interdependent world. With the pandemic, we created a an emergency fund for workers and a relief program for employers. We raised like $20 million and 220,000 workers applied for relief. And rather than just handing out $500 cash payments, we actually have engaged 220,000 workers in fighting for one fair wage, in striking and in voting and getting everybody else they know to vote. We started a voter program out of that relief fund. This is a population of people, 220,000 workers. We checked their voter record. They have a less than 20, tw less than 20 percent of them ever voted in their lives. And the vast majority are citizens that can vote. On the employer side, we worked with Governor Newsom in California and then Mayor de Blasio in New York and now Mayor Duggan in Detroit to create a program called High Road Kitchens that's providing relief, cash grants, to restaurants that commit to transitioning to a full livable wage with tips on top. And it's very different. Lots of cities are now, and the government is looking at just blanket relief for restaurants and blanket relief for different sectors with no conditions and no requirements for change. And what we're doing is the opposite which is saying we've got to save independent restaurants, but we've got to only save independent restaurants if they're committed to change. Thank you. Uh, Michelle, same to you. What does the world look like or how do we get to it that aligns these incentives of what feels like an epic, everlasting pitch battle so that workers and companies they work with and for are working together more? So I want to start with one thing we can do and then how that enables a really radically different vision. About a quarter of the country is experiencing unemployment right now. We have rates of unemployment that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. And what people are experiencing in that is the absolute structural failure of our unemployment system as it is currently designed. The fact that 
The system is designed not to be navigable. It's designed to push you into employment based on this presumption that you always have to be working. And if you're not working, there's something wrong with you that you're, you're taking from our society. And that because the duty to care has been essentially abandoned in the public sector and has been kind of left to corporations, if you don't have a job, like there's no way for you to access the things that you need and that the unemployment crisis is lining up with the eviction crisis. Like the eviction crisis is actually an unemployment crisis and vice versa, and also lining up with the debt crisis that we have people that are in many ways experiencing all three of these structural failures all at once. But the opportunity that lies in that is that we can look at all of these systems and really start to talk about how they don't function to make people's lives actually better and more livable and start interrogating questions about like, why do we expect people to have to be working all of the time? Why is it not reasonable to expect that after you lose a job, you might take a few months to like recover and think about what you'd like to do next? Why is there an entire class of people in this country that we think shouldn't even have agency about what job they choose next? Because often, and specifically people in low-income jobs and mostly people of, of color who are working in service sector jobs are basically treated like they should just take whatever the next job that comes along to them is, regardless of their own agency and choice about what they might like to be doing. So what if we thought about our experience of work and not working as like equal parts of the ways in which we're engaged in the economy and ways of identifying what we would like to contribute ourselves. And, and that actually is enabled by like initially in a very practical way, radically reimagining how the unemployment system works. Like there was a time when you paid into the system, you got 10 months of unemployment, you weren't shoved into whatever job was next. And you were able to actually like make active decisions about what you want to do with your life. It was not perfect, but it was better than what it is now. A lot of what we're doing right now is, is working with unemployed workers to have them articulate the system failures and then the things that they would like to see be different in the next phase of understanding unemployment. And the reason that, again, I think that is really connected to this question of like, where could we get is that I would like it. If the way that we thought about the economy was something that we all hold a piece of in our hands and we hold that piece as we go to work or as we pay our rent or as we are consumers, but that we aren't sort of objects of the economy or agents of the economy and that we can make decisions together at the local level, the municipal level, the state level about what do we want the economy to do right now? Like, what is this for? If we are in a place where um, a lot of growth has been tearing apart our parks and trees, and we know that climate change is coming and we need to do something about the land. We can make a decision that like a growth mindset for the companies around us is probably not going to be good for our long term survival. We can make those decisions right now. There are so few people making those decisions who only have one interest, which is in growth and in lining their pockets, that that kind of actual negotiation around what we value is not possible. So. I feel like this moment around confronting unemployment and eviction and all of these ways in which the economic setups haven't been working for people for a long time, they're at their peak pressure point, gives us a moment to say, what do we actually want from what we get when we go to work or we look for housing or we live in our cities and towns? I'm going to be thinking for a long time about not being an object of the economy, but an agent of the economy. That was so well said. And when you make it plural, agents of the economy, it sounds like a new Marvel superhero <laughs> series. 
where we're all the superheroes because we're making active choices about how we want to contribute and how we want to participate. And it's just a more empowered way to see ourselves, which is the point of this practice and this exercise we're doing together. So thank you for that. It really moved me. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Today, more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud to help you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We have a few questions lined up 
Uh, so let's go to Tom. You are up. You know, we do have collective power as consumers. And I'm wondering, as a consumer, how do we use that power to further this movement? You know, how do we make sure we're supporting the right kind of restaurants and companies? And how do we know that it's going to help the situation? Yeah. So we've been actually thinking and working on that very question for a really long time, because in our industry, we observed consumers very visibly have a real impact on restaurants with regard to local and organic and sustainable food. I remember 20 years ago, restaurants in New York saying, I'll never be able to afford locally sourced organic food. And then before the pandemic, restaurants were jumping over each other to say they provided locally sourced organic food, whether or not they actually did. <laughs> and a lot of that came about because consumers read, you know, Omnivore's Dilemma and Fast Food Nation and saw movies about the food system and then went to restaurants and said, is this local? Is this organic? Is this vegetarian? And there's that great Portlandia sketch, which we always think of as our kind of ideal. I don't know if everybody watches Portlandia, but there's that sketch where the couple goes in and asks the waitress, you know, is this chicken organic? Did it have friends? What was its name? Did one chicken put their arm around the other chicken? Um, call in the chicken. That was it. <laughs> and just imagine if consumers did the same thing to ask the manager, is this server paid? <laughs> just imagine if the customer did the same thing to say, how come there are no people of color in the dining floor? There's plenty of people in the color in the kitchen. Um, just imagine if they said, is everybody here have paid sick leave and hazard pay? The kind of impact that could have. So we spent a lot of time looking at the sustainable local organic food movement and saying not only how could we replicate that consumer activity, but also how could we expand the definition of sustainable food to include sustainable wages and working conditions for the people in the food system. And we created a diner's guide, an app that tells you which restaurants are doing the right thing. Every year we're giving out awards to restaurants doing the right thing. We even created videos to show consumers how to walk into a restaurant or eat. And at the end of the, your meal, go up to your manager and say, love the food here, love the service, but I actually would love to see you get a gold or silver award in this app. I'd love to see you pay livable wages. I'd love to see you do X, Y, and Z. We have the app. You can see it on in your app store. It's called the ROC National Diner's Guide. But the pandemic happened and a lot of those restaurants that got awards in that app are now you know, on the, on the brink. The biggest impact you can have as consumers is to say to your elected officials, I, it's outrageous. I refuse to continue to subsidize multi-million dollar corporations by paying their workers' wages with my tips. It's outrageous. I refuse to put my own public health at risk because the state or the city refuses to require paid sick leave or paid family leave or hazard pay for these workers. So yes, we need you to absolutely effectuate change as consumers, but you as consumers have power not just to effectuate that change with restaurants or businesses, but also with the people who represent you and those businesses. They value employers' voices over everybody else. And the way that changes is by them hearing from consumers and workers as much as they hear from the restaurant association and big business and even small business. Saru, I, I like that it inspired a thought, uh, which is if we form some kind of national 
Residents Association, maybe the other other NRA to <laughs> counter、right. the other NRA <laughs> lobbying for the people.、Yeah. Uh, Michelle, I want to give you a chance to quickly weigh in on what consumers and and purchasers could do, and I want to get to at least one more question. We have someone waiting. Yeah, actually, I just. Plus one, everything Saru said to save time, and also tell you that there's a platform called Spendrise that kind of mirrors what we do, but they do it on the consumer side and where consumers can commit to spend money based on an employer making changes at the company that they're targeting. So I would suggest you check that out and get involved in Spendrise. Spendrise, yes. All right, thank you.、Uh, next, and I think finally we're going to go to Sarah. Thank you very much for taking my question on air. I appreciate it. So, in light of the things we were just talking about, and also the vision that you have, I'm interested in knowing whether there has been discussion of organizing a large-scale general strike of as many workers as possible by your organizations or others that you may be aware of、uh, in response to these compounded public health crises of systemic poverty, the pandemic itself, environmental devastation writ large. And kind of how we're seeing the hollowing out of many of the systems folks have counted on for support when crises hit. If this is going to continue to happen, which ecologists, economists, and others are saying it likely is, the workers' collective power may be the only real response. But I'm curious. There's been a lot of discussion of that. Sarah Nelson from the Flight Attendants Union essentially stopped the government shutdown by threatening a. Strike by airline employees, which sparked this conversation about general strike. I think that general strike is very challenging to put up, pull off, and what people need is practice and building the muscles of really creating situations of collective care in order to be able to sustain the length of time that is required for a general strike. And so, what I think we see workers doing right now is actually preparation. For being able to engage in some kind of large-scale walkout, I will also say that today we launched、um, the Coworker Solidarity Fund, which we're piloting in the tech industry with tech workers, where workers are raising funds to support people engaging in worker actions like walkouts and strikes and other things, so that that's sort of crowdfunded within the company. Workers who make a little bit more money or people from the general public. Can contribute to the fund so that when workers on other lower ends of the supply chain decide to take these actions, they're not bearing the financial burden and brunt of that all by themselves, but that there's something to supplement that. So I feel like we're all kind of getting the little pieces in place to make these kinds of things more possible. I just want to add that that is why I wanted to show you that 24-foot Elena, the essential worker statue, because we're hoping she's the new Rosie the Riveter. We're working with an essential worker coalition to get all the groups to use her and then to come together, really, to put on a general strike. Absolutely, that's absolutely the way we're thinking. I think that the, some of the most inspiring organizing work by independent contractors has been done、um, through like groups like the Gig Workers Collective and Gig Workers Rising. These Uber and Lyft drivers and people who work for Instacart and Postmates and all of these app-based delivery models, where the technology makes it really possible to enact incredible amounts of control over all of the actions that the worker takes, but then they sort of have this plausible deniability, being like, "Well, it's flexible, so you're not really an employee," and they've they've been able to really get away with not providing people with their basic rights. I would just add that there's a super exciting. Thing happening in California, we had about thirty-five thousand workers apply to our relief fund, both gig workers, independent contractors, and restaurant workers. 
and they are coming together now to form a worker-owned kind of entity that we hope would be a competitor in this space to the Uber Eats and the DoorDashes and the Lyfts. Um, so I think you're right. I think there is an opportunity that sometimes the right goes too far and they end up creating opportunities for us. <laughs> um, and by basically disavowing these workers as their own employees, these workers are therefore free to put their skills together and maybe create a high road alternative to the Uber Eats and the DoorDashes through worker ownership. That could be a model, you're right, to other sectors of more traditional employees. So we haven't talked about worker ownership at all today, but there is this huge moment of opportunity with the quarter of the country that's unemployed, as Michelle said, to think about people actually creating their own worker-owned spaces at scale. And I'll just tell you one last thing. There are two worker-owned restaurant and catering companies in the world that exceed 100,000 workers. One is in Italy and one is in India. The one in Italy started in a severe economic depression in Northern Italy and has become the third largest catering company in all of Europe. And so it is totally possible for workers to band together in moments like this of severe economic depression and create something entirely new that could revolutionize the way we think about work. Michelle, Saru, thank you so much for helping us reimagine workers and power and the balance thereof in our economy and helping us see ourselves as not objects, but agents of the economy. That's the thing that's gonna stick with me. I'm gonna sleep on a lot of this, but you provided some solid examples. You diagnosed the problem and you pointed a really nice way out, many ways out. In fact, so we appreciate uh, your generosity and thanks for interacting with us Thank here, you. showing us how to citizen. Thank you so much. Thank it was you. great to be with all of you. Hey, you, it's just us again in our private Baratunde listener moment. I want to turn it over to you now. It's your turn to citizen. We've gotten fired up. We're ready to go. Michelle Ansaru dropped a lot of knowledge on us, and now it's time to practice citizening and put it to work ourselves. You can find all of these actions at howtocitizen.com in much more detail than I'm going to lay out right now. As always, there are two categories of things you can do, the internal work and the external work. Internally, here's a set of questions I want you to ask yourself, thinking of yourself as a worker. First, is the value I create for people in my community, society, or environment accurately reflected in how I'm compensated? As a worker, do I feel represented and protected by my HR department? If I experience my employer violating my rights or someone else's, do I know the rules, the process, where the law stands on that? In a bit more broader sense, how does the consolidation of power in the hands of a fewer number of corporations, how does that affect me? Can I think of any ways that that shows up in my life? Externally, here are three things you can actually do. When you frequent a local restaurant or business, I want you to ask management about how they're treating their workers. Ask, are they on a minimum wage and what is that? Ask if they get paid sick leave. Ask if this business promotes people from within. Are there opportunities for advancement internally? There's an app I want you to put on your phone. It's called Rock National Diner's Guide, ROC. It's available for iOS and Android. So we got pretty much everybody covered. And you can think of it like a Yelp for 
local restaurants with a focus on labor rights. Check out that app, find restaurants with the good ratings in your area, support them. If a restaurant you love isn't there, add them to the platform. Get them registered in this database and ask them about their practices. Again, they'll see your demand and they'll adjust how they serve you and how they treat their workers in response. Finally, there's always efforts underway that you can join and support. And I want to hit you with a couple. There's a fund that's run by One Fair Wage, Saru's group. It's the One Fair Wage COVID Relief Fund. Find and support that. Coworker.org also has a solidarity fund that we encourage you to contribute to and share. Finally, we are big in this show in thinking of ourselves not just as individuals, but as more empowered when we think as a collective. And that's really powerful in our role as consumers. So check out spendrise.com and support an existing consumer campaign or start one based on the principles you've heard about in this episode. Again, those links are available at howtocitizen.com with a lot more detail around these actions. And if you take any one of them, we want to hear about it. So send an email to action at howtocitizen.com. Help us out by putting the word work in the subject line. And if you want to tell the world to, we encourage that as well. So just use the hashtag howtocitizen. That'll help us find it and lift up your efforts in the process. You can follow Saru Jayaraman on Twitter at S-A-R-U-J-A-Y-A-R-A-M-A-N and Michelle I. Miller on Twitter as well. That's Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, the letter I, and then Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R. OneFairWage.com and Coworker.org. As always, if you are digging this show, let the platforms know with a positive rating and a review. And if you want to stay in touch and get updates directly from me, I've got something special for you. Text me, 202-894-8844. Put the word citizen in the text and you'll get alerted to future tapings. You'll get to chat back and forth with me and you'll have a chance to find out more about the How to Citizen universe and about my own world. How to Citizen with Baratunde is a production of iHeartRadio Podcast, executive produced by Miles Gray, Nick Stump, Elizabeth Stewart, and Baratunde Thurston. Produced by Joel Smith, edited by Justin Smith, powered by you. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 